is a joy to be with you this morning. I would like to do something that is ill-advised. I have three questions for you this morning before we jump into our text, which is Psalm 103. And I'm going to begin the first question by way of a bad idea, Todd, word association game. I've been told this is a very bad idea. Nevertheless, I'd like to play a word association game with you as my first question. I'm going to give you a word, and I would like for you to think and remember what word comes to mind for you. I give one word, you think of one word. Todd, we get it. Our education system in Minnesota is better than Georgia. I agree with you on that. <laughs> Here's my word. Ready? God. What came to mind for you? About 80 years ago, there was a bit of a transcontinental theological debate amongst two theologians over this issue. The question was, what do you think about when you think about God? You're perhaps familiar with A.W. Tozer. He wrote this 80 years ago. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Whoa, that's heavy. So whatever that word was that popped into your mind, that's the most important thing about you, according to A.W. Tozer. The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous facts about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. May I ask you, how do you conceive God? When you think about God, which according to Tozer is the most important thing you can think about, what is it? What's his face, if you will, to use an anthropomorphism? How does God look? When you think about God, which of his attributes pops into your brain? Now, we need to understand the doctrine of simplicity keeps us from having a theological debate about which attribute of God is the greatest because God isn't made up of attributes. He's not a puzzle. He's simple in that he is who he is. So God isn't 15% righteousness, 20% justice, 10% love, and, and he gets put together like a puzzle. No, he, he just is. He's all of these things. So I, I'm not particularly interested in trying to solve that theological dilemma as to which of God's attributes is greatest. A.W. Tozer because he wrote this in a book about the holiness of God, would argue that holiness is what should come to mind for us. I wouldn't debate A.W. Tozer. I understand, Ace, last week you preached on the subject of the holiness of God. But I would ask you not to, not to determine one, two, and three attributes, but may I ask you, did the attribute of God's love enter into your radar screen at all? Or was it perhaps other attributes, whether it is righteousness, justice, his wrath, now that he's a consuming fire, that he's the omnis, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent. What did you think of when you thought about God? Did it involve the love of God? Now, interestingly, another theologian across the pond he apparently read what A.W. Tozer posed, and that is the greatest thought you can think is what you think about when you think about God. 
And this theologian, who I normally do not quote, but he is useful for our purposes this morning, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote this. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. It is not, that's strong, how God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except it so far as it is related to how he thinks of us. So let me ask our second question. How does God think about you? Have you pondered it? Have you allowed yourself to consider that question? Because you know, he does think of you all the time. And I mean all the time. In his omniscience, you are never out of his radar screen. You're always on it. What's he thinking when he thinks about you, may I ask? Do you think, well, he's, uh, he's patient, puts up with me a lot. He, uh, he should strike me. He's, maybe you think he's angry. Maybe when you ponder, you allow yourself to consider what God might be thinking about you. Maybe you think he's just forbearing. Maybe you think weak. God thinks of you. Your name, it arises in the Trinitarian dialogue. And God is just, mm, you are, he's pretty pathetic, that one. She's pretty weak in her faith, that one. Does he have displeasure? Is he tolerating you? Might I ask you again, would you be willing to consider that when God thinks of you, he thinks of it in the framework of love? That's actually what C.S. Lewis concluded. C.S. Lewis, again. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work of a father in a son, it seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. When you think about what God thinks of you, do you think that he actually loves you? That God loves you. And he is forever guided by the love that he has for you because you are buried in Christ Jesus. How much love does the father have for his adopted children? as much love as he has for the son. How much is that? It's a lot. And that means God is actually guided by his decision to justify you and forever think of you in terms of, I'm going to use the word, affection. Do you allow yourself to consider that when God thinks about you, his thoughts are guided by love? Let me bring a third question to this conversation about the attributes of God. What attribute do you think God wants you? I'm not asking which attribute is the greatest. I don't think that that is a debate any of us are gonna resolve, nor maybe even can or should. And I certainly don't wanna temper with the doctrine of impassibility, the passions of God. But I would like to ask you this question. Which attribute of God do you think he wants you to, I'm going to use a risky word again because of Henry Blackaby, which of God's attributes does he want you to experience the most? Have you considered that? If God 
and he does, has set forth for us what he wants us to know and respond to, and here comes another word, feel. What attribute does he want us to experience? I'm not arguing which attribute is preeminent. I'm asking you, are you willing to consider that God wants you, born-again Christian, to experience his great love for you? Why do I bring this text and this subject today? It's my experience in our Bible-based circles. We love theology, and that is a good thing, and yet theology is a precarious business. For instance, if Ace preached on the holiness of God last week, and this week, and next week, and the week, and that's all he ever preached on, you're going to think of singular concepts about God being holiness of God. And what will that produce? Inevitably, it's going to produce the fruit, perhaps, of fear. And it's certainly going to be lacking the love of God. Now, conversely, if I came this Sunday and preached to you about the love of God, and next Sunday the love of God, and next Sunday the love of God, what's going to happen? We're going to be like the man Martin Luther described the Christian man in the Christian walk. It's like a drunken man who gets on a horse, he climbs up, he falls off the left side, he gets back up and he falls off the right side. It's tricky preaching about the attributes of God because we can become fixated on an attribute and that informs everything. We don't wanna make that mistake. But having said that, because we have such a desire for theology, if you and I are only focusing on theology because we love it, anybody else here, I love, I like the study of it. Just like you might like the study of chemistry or music. I love theology. But if all I'm doing is studying theology and neglecting emotions, well, that's going to turn me into a different type of Christian. If I'm only focusing on emotions, then I'm going to be a mindless Christian who no doubt gets wonky and off track because I'm fixated on a singular feeling or emotion. And we see that all the time these days, don't we? That's, that's what the NAR is all, the New Apostolic Reformation is all about. Just feeling it, you gotta feel it. You've gotta come to the sermon, we're gonna dim the lights and we're gonna get the mood music going and oh, we're just gonna, oh, we're gonna feel it. And they bypass the intellect to stir up some feelings. I don't wanna fall into that ditch and neither do you. So we're gonna be careful that we are not like Martin Luther's drunken man on a horse. We're going to try to do what our text actually encourages and to understand the love of God and the fear of God. But I wonder this morning, may I ask you to ask yourself, which one of these weighs more heavily on you? And maybe it's, neither, it's possible it's neither. But I would simply ask you, how much weight is on the scale of love? God's love for you, a sinner. Now, some of you are responding already and you're going, wait a second, what happened to Todd Friel <laughs> with all of this love business? Um, nothing's happened. We simply have to deal with what God says about the love that he desires for you to enjoy. You know the confession, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Enjoy what? exactly. Might I suggest to you the attribute he most wants you to experience is his love. That God wants you to enjoy him 
by diving into the depths of the love that he actually has for you. And you might be thinking, watch yourself, pal. The Bible says God is holy, holy, holy. It doesn't say he's love, love, love. You're right, it does say he's holy, holy, holy. But as we will see soon in 1 John 4, God says he is love. We've got to deal with the text. And maybe you're thinking, uh-oh, I am not comfortable with this subject at all. Truly, have you ever tried to just for a moment consider God's great love for you? And did you, did you start to do what I do? Whoa, um, whoa, it's too much. It's just, it's too much. If that's your sentiment, might I suggest to you, I think that's exactly what he wants. I think he wants us to be overwhelmed with his magnanimous love. So if perhaps you're recoiling a little bit and saying, this is, this is a little uncomfortable with me, or perhaps you're responding and saying, you know what, I think I want, I know something's missing. I maybe have a head full, but my heart, it's, it's, it's the church of Ephesus. It's not as warm as it once was. I, I'd like that back again. Then might I encourage all of us this morning to dive into the text, deal with what it says, not fall off of the horse of theology into one ditch or another, including the love ditch. So with that in mind, let's take a look at Psalm 103. And we're going to tackle this text, half of it at least, the psalm, in three points. Three points. Do we have any Southern Baptists or former Southern Baptists here today? I did this outline for you. It's sort of alliterated. That God's love is amazing. God's love is massive. And here's the point that might get you to just kind of go, ooh. And God's love is mine. God's love is amazing, it's massive, and it's mine. Now, before I read the entire text, I'd simply like to point out to you what David has done in this psalm, which we see regularly in the Bible. Psalm 103 is actually an inclusio. You hear the word inclusion. It's a bookended chapter. It's a bookended psalm. And so if you look at Psalm 103, verse 1, how does it begin? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let all that is within me bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And then you scoot to the very last verse, and what do you see? Bless the Lord, O my soul. So we've got the same sentiment expressed, verse 1, verse 23. That means everything inside of it is intended to help us bless the Lord. In other words, David is going to give us a lot of truth about God. In other words, he's not going to circumvent the intellect. He is going to feed the intellect with information about God. And the product of that is, bless the Lord, O my soul. If you want to worship God more fully, don't go to a place that is simply trying to provoke your emotions. You've got to hear music that has theological depth. You've got to hear teaching about the Word of God. That is exactly what David does. He tells you, oh, this is what God is. This is what he's done. This is what he's doing. And the inevitable result of being fed theological information is worship. May I ask you, before we dive into this text, how are you doing in that regard? Are you 
finding a way to get that information. You know the old cliche, the longest eight inches is between your head and your heart. David, David wants to deal with both. Not just gonna go for your heart, but he's not just gonna stay in your head. Please notice, it doesn't say, bless the Lord, O my mind. Bless the Lord, O my soul, that all that is within me, bless your holy name. How does that happen? You fill your mind with thoughts about God and then your heart is warmed and it expresses itself joyfully in song. With that, here's our text. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not any, forget none of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good. He's piling it on so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. He's quoting Exodus 34, paraphrasing, and abounding in steadfast love. But he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God's love is amazing because it is connected to his grace. Did you catch that in the psalm? That God's love is expressed most powerfully through grace. Take a look at verse 2. Forget none of his benefits. What is the first benefit? He forgives our iniquities. Lists are important. You, 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 you want to sing praises to the Lord? You want your soul stirred? You need to know that God forgives all of our iniquities. Verse 3, who pardons all your iniquities. And then he lists, he heals our diseases, he redeems us and crowns us with love and compassion. He gives us good things in verse 5, renews us and does righteous things for us. Verse 6, he works justice for the oppressed. David emphasizes God's redeeming love that causes us to sing, bless the Lord, O my soul. Look at the focus. Verse 3, he forgives our iniquity. Verse 4, he redeems us from the pit. Verse 8, God is gracious and merciful. Verse 10, he doesn't repay us for our iniquities. Verse 12, he removes our sins from us. He lists a lot of the kind things that God does for us, but he focuses on his amazing grace in connection with his steadfast love, which endures forever. And that is why he jumps into Exodus 34. Exodus 34, we need to remember the context of this. God has delivered the children of Israel. He is making good on his covenantal promise with Abraham to provide a land, a nation, and a seed. And so he has ordained for the children of Israel to populate in the land of Egypt. He takes them out of captivity. Not that it depleted God's power source, but that's no small thing. He delivered 
these people through the wilderness, providing food for them every day, providing water for them, bringing them into a land flowing with milk and honey, and they are about to cut a covenantal contract with God. And while God is speaking to Moses, starting in Exodus chapter 20, what are the children of Israel doing? They're making a golden calf to worship. What? Un believable and that is why when we arrive at Exodus 34 the tension should be palpable to us God said I am going to provide a land nation and a seed I'm going to make good on my Genesis 3:15 promise to send one who would crush the head of the serpent all of the Old Testament is a longing who is the one who crushes the head of the serpent who is the seed and they commit the grossest idolatry against God what will he do? How will he treat these people? And Moses, interceding for the people, asks God, I'd like to see you. And David now is quoting that to make his emphatic point that God's love is expressed through his amazing grace. God gives the longest self-descriptor of himself in the Bible. If you want to know what God is all about, Look for the longest treatise by God himself about God himself. Please notice, and there's a magnificent parallel in our text. I don't know if you're doing math on it, but in our text, Psalm 103, there were about eight, depending on how you count them, softer attributes. God does all these good things. God does all of these good things. And that's what Moses does. He ladles on, or he records for us God's words, his descriptor of himself, Eight soft attributes. There's severe attributes, there's soft attributes. Severe, wrath, justice, anger. But look at how God spends time. Remember what's going on down that hill. Those people that he chose are, are committing gross apostasy. And listen to the descriptor, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, count it with me, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping that love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, forgiving all transgression and all sin. You go, well, what, what, why did he have to say the same thing three times? He's, he's screaming to you, God is a sin bearer who forgives iniquities. That's who God is. You want to know who I am, Moses? Here's me. This is what I am. I am this God, the God of steadfast love, the God who forgives iniquity, even of those people down that hill. But please note, God makes it very clear he is not one to be trifled with. And this is where we want to find our balance. We don't want to just, oh, that God is just, oh, just constant tender mercies. That's, oh, that affectionate. He just gives me a hug all the time because mm, I'm so adorable. No, that's, that, we, we see that God corrects that for us. What does he say? But I'm not going to forgive iniquities if you mess with me. I'm paraphrasing. And if you notice in Psalm 103, the very same pattern. He helps us find our balance. David lists seven softer, kinder things that God does for us, focusing mostly on forgiving our iniquities. But what does he say? To those who fear him, that helps us find our balance. We always need to be careful whenever we consider an attribute of God that that doesn't become the totality of God. That has 
nothing but mischief connected to it. We're going to remember holiness. We're not going to forget that. We're not going to forget that God is a consuming fire and it is a fearful thing to fall into his hands. That the foundation of his throne is righteousness and justice and he's appointed a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness. We're never going to forget that. But is it possible you've forgotten God's love? Is it, is it possible that you haven't given the attention due to how God wants you to know him? This is God speaking about himself. This is who I am. Have you ever pondered, to use an anthropomorphism, God's face? God's, what is God's face? How does he look? What, what, what? If he would turn to you right now, what would you imagine you're going to see? Is it going to be a severe God? An angry God? Now please note, here's where it gets tricky. Yeah, he is those things. But I believe Moses in Exodus 34 and David in our text is making it clear, but he wants you to know he's a loving God. He's a merciful God. He's a good God. He's a gracious God. He's a forbearing God. He's a pitying God. That is who you get to know because of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to keep studying these things, but let's not forget how God wants us to know him, that his love is amazing because it's connected to what he does for us through the work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What is, what, what's love? Foreigner wanted to know. They could never quite figure that out. <laughs> What, 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 and what's love got to do with it? I would suggest to you everything. Everything. Let's not forget his other attributes. Don't think I'm doing that. But please, let us, let us focus on what he wants us to enjoy about him. And that is his forgiveness. So consider 1 John 4. John is the, is, is the apostle of love for good reason. John uses the word love 51 times in his short epistle, 51 times. In these four verses we're reading, 13 times he uses the word love. He's the one who wrote of himself in the Gospel of John. He's the disciple Jesus loved. He's the one who gave us John 3.16. He's the apostle of love because he focuses on the love that he experienced that he wants you to experience also. So look at the connection here. In 1 John, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Evolution, just, con and love, that notion. When did we decide, you know, we're hating each other a lot, but it would be kind of sweet if we really started having tender affection toward one another. Let's start evolving love. It's nonsense. Love isn't a creation of God. John tells us love is God. God is love. This is, this is your predicate nominative, you English geeks. This is God putting an equal sign. This is, you want to know who I am? I'm telling you who I am. You want to know where love comes from? It comes from me. Why? Because that's what I am. God doesn't wait to feel love. God is love. This brings us back to impassibility. It's always right. It's always, it's always the correct response, foreordained but it's always there because that's what he is. 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love God, or does not love, does not know God, because God is love. Now notice, he echoes David. God's love is amazing because it's connected to his grace. By this, you want to know what love looks like? Here it is. By this, the love of God was revealed in us that God has sent his only son into the world so that we may live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation, the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. God isn't, God isn't crabby. God, is, God isn't capricious. God isn't fuming, just waiting for you to step over that line one more time. He tells us God is love. Does that mean that he won't discipline us? Yes, he does. But how does he do that? Like a loving father, he will send things into our life, permit bad things to happen to us out of his love for us. What is your opinion of God? What does his face look like? I would argue it is a face of love. And we see that expressed in the doctrine of propitiation. All right, my theological friends. Propitiation, whoa, what a doctrine. There it is, 1 John 4. He buys us back. He propitiates for us. Love that doctrine. And I love it too, but we should love the one who accomplished that doctrine more than the doctrine itself. Have you allowed yourself to do that lately? God is love. Propitiation, it is, it's the high watermark of God's love for us. And it's not a love that is based on how lovable we are. That's what makes this so staggering to us. He loves the unlovable. He doesn't love the adorable. This is such good news for you. If you're insecure, if you have a fear of man problem, you need to hear this. It kind of stings up front. There's nothing about you that caused God to go, yeah, that one. Nothing. That is really good news. All right. So for instance, for me, I think pretty clearly, if you were going to pick anything, he'd go, he's so handsome. <laughs> All right. Let's say that were true. And what happens as it is when handsome starts sagging? What if it's your winsome personality that somehow and gets stifled due to illness. It's your sense of humor, but you're not as quick-witted. If God loves you because of an attribute inside of you, look out, it's precarious. Because as soon as that thing inside of you wanes, grows old, gets saggy, gra gravity has its effect, you are not as smart, your mind isn't as sharp, and you thought God loved you because, well, how could he not love somebody so brilliant? You're in trouble. This doctrine says God loves you constantly and consistently. It cannot change. It is not based on you. It's based on him, the God who says of himself, God is love. That means God loves you, Christian, no matter what you're doing. Question, does God love you more when you're reading your Bible or sinning? It's, we want to say, well, he loves me more when I'm, when I'm reading my Bible. Wrong. Because he doesn't love us based on what we do, based on what we are. He loves us because he's love. I'm going to make it even a little bit more shocking. Does God love you more when you're reading your Bible 
or looking at pornography? The same. The same. And while some people would argue, oh, you're talking about God's love too much, that's going to promote licentiousness. I tell you, it's going to promote holiness. Because you know what, dear Christian? You can look at that porn if you choose, and you will be forgiven. And that is the very knowledge that's going to cause you to go, why in the world would I want to do that? Against the God who promises to forgive me, even if I look at this filth, why would I want the lesser thing? Why would I want dirty water? I want the pure spring of God's love. I want him. I don't want that. I want him. That is what the attribute of God's love will do for you. It will not lead you down a road of licentiousness. It will lead you to holiness because God loves you that much. Whether you resist temptation or don't, God loves you. Whether you are being sweet with your kids or yelling at your children, God loves you the same. And this for the born-again Christian. Now, perhaps there might be some who are self-deceived and are going to go, this is really good news because I love yelling at my kids and I am off the hook and I'm good to go with God and he still loves me. Not for the born-again believer. In the moment, Dad, when you get home and you hear the announcement, that boy of yours, because... <laughs> Somehow it became your child based on, deal with it. Now you can charge in there and you can yell at your kid and demean, make them cry, get them to conform, and you're going to be forgiven. Think about that on your way up the stairs and your tone is going to change. Why would I do such a thing? God doesn't yell at me. God, God doesn't demean me. He doesn't, he doesn't, spank me violently. I'm going to go love the kid because I've been loved so much because that is what God's love is. May I ask you a question? How are you receiving this? Is this a little uncomfortable for you? I think it should be. I really do. God's love is massive. God's love is amazing because it's connected to his grace, but God's love is massive. You wonder how in the world are we going to enjoy God forever in eternity? How am I going to experience God's love in increasing measure for eternity? We're going to get our answer in our psalm. Scientists, how fast is the speed of light? Homeschoolers, where are you? <laughs> hmm. 186,000 miles per second. How wide is our little galaxy? 100,000 light years. That's our galaxy. It is estimated there's 200 billion of these out there. I, I think they estimate somewhere like it's, it's 6 billion light years wide. Your brain can't go there. That is how big it is out there. Look at Psalm 103, verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so massive is his steadfast love toward those who, here it is again, fear him. If you've ever wondered, why did God create the universe? It wasn't because he was lonely. He needed a hobby. Well, things are getting a little tedious in the Trinitarian Godhead relationship. I'm going to need some people so that I can do something. Oh, no. 
He created this universe to express his love. Do you ever have a lot of love for someone? What do you want to do with it? Keep it to yourself? No, you want to express it. God has so much love. His love is infinite. And he desires to express it. And to those atheist critics who would say, well, God, he's just a megalomaniacal dictator. He wants us to love him. Yeah, because he's love. And loving him is the best thing to love because he is love and his love is greater than the heavens. That's how big God's love is. And David tells us elsewhere that love surrounds you. Right now, that love, all of, think of Atlas. You know the, the, the guy and he's got the thing because he's carrying the weight of the, you got the universe on your back and that universe is God's love. That's how massive God's love is. I'm gonna use a prepositional phrase for you. For you, not abstractly, not in a generalized kind of way. God's love for you is amazing and it's massive. And our third point, it's mine. It's yours, believer. You have this. You can enjoy this as much as you want to. Take a look at Psalm 103, verse 13. Just as a father has compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who, look at this, here it is again, those who fear him. He's helping us keep our balance here. But how does God describe his love? It is a fatherly love, dads. How do you love your kids? You do anything for those kids. Your, your affection for them is, is, is indescribable till they die. They, they can become such rotten little things and and by the way, if I can do a shout out, if you're here and you're young today, I'm just telling you, the world is going to tell you to shun your parents. It will be the dumbest thing you will ever do. You're going to want your parents to affirm every decision that you make and applaud you for doing whatever it is that your heart delights in. That's not what parents do. Your parents love you so much, they're willing to go, honey, that is just, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. And the world is going to tell you they're invading your space. They become toxic. Get away from them. You reject that worldview. It'll be the sorriest day of your life when you go, I can't wait to get away from those Christian people. I've had enough of them. You don't have anybody more in your corner than those two people whose last name you share. Don't run away from them. Run to them. Do what the Proverbs tell you to do. Seek wisdom from them. You go, my parents are stupid. No, that's what the world tells you. I can assure you, your parents, breaking news, they just know more than you do. All right, you're 18. If there were a three-year-old here, and I said, well, you guys are on equal playing field here. That three-year-old knows as much as you. You'd be like, get out of town. Okay, well, I'm guessing your parents, unless they're from the South, are more than 15 years older than you. <laughs> Sorry. They know stuff. Go get that. I want that, mom and dad. You got godly parents. What a blessing for you. Don't reject that. The world is going to tell you. Jettison that love. Oh, no. Don't jettison fatherly, maternal love. It is good, and it will do whatever you need that is best for you. That's God's love. It's relational. It's described as fatherly. Hebrews 2 says it's a brotherly love. Isaiah 41 describes God's love as amicable. It's friendly. It's, 
know if I want to use this illustration. If you were in an elevator with God, what do you suppose that would be like till you got to your floor? You think he'd just be turning his back to you? Or maybe just assaulting you inside of the elevator? No, that's not God's love. He's the most amicable being on the planet, and he wants you to know it. His love, Exodus 20, is jealous. Deuteronomy 12 says, "Uh uh-oh, here comes some language. It's going to make you squirm. His love is tender. God takes pleasure in you. Hold on. Psalm 149. Again, I'm not going to dabble with the doctrine of impassibility, but we've got to deal with the text. Psalm 149, verse 4. God takes delight in his children. He takes delight in it. How do you think God declared you righteous? When you got saved, how did God do it? Was it fine? I made that promise long ago. I'll do it. Or was it enthusiastic? I I forgive you. I'm giving this to you. He enthusiastically declares justified because he takes delight in his children. Deuteronomy 26 says, you're his treasured possession. Here's one that's been abused, but it's in our Bible, Zephaniah 3. God rejoices over you with singing. That's God's love, and it's yours. It's yours. He wants you to have it, and many of us aren't willing to go into this pool of love to get to the depths of God's love, which we will never experience, for a multitude of reasons, but maybe, just maybe, one of the reasons is, believe it or not, you, maybe, like many Christians, don't fully understand the doctrine of justification. Oh, how dare you? We're a Bible-teaching church. I got you. I, I know you know the doctrine of justification, that you are justified because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. You are imputed with his righteousness. You are credited by God. You don't become infused with righteousness. You are credited with the righteousness of Christ. Got it. Would you please turn your Bible to Romans 5? Romans 5, verse 1. This is vital for living a joy-filled Christian life. Vital to understand this. Romans 5.1 Therefore, Having been justified by faith, there's our doctrine of justification in which we rejoice, you have been one time declared justified. When God regenerated you, brought you to life, he made a legal declaration in heaven, justified, and he did it joyfully and enthusiastically, declaring you forever a saint in his kingdom. But it continues, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 2, through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we celebrate in hope of the glory of God. Prepare for a shocker. Justification is great. Amen. But there's something greater, what justification accomplishes. Did you catch it? We know justification is a legal declaration. It is a done deal. It is sealed. 
but it serves an even greater purpose. Did you catch it? We're no longer at war with God, we're at peace with God, and justification is our introduction to God. If I could, justification takes you, rebel, by the hand and says, the Father wants to spend time with you. Come, let me introduce you to him where you can stay and enjoy him forever because his love for you is massive. Justification is indeed amazing, but it accomplishes something even greater, our introduction to God so that we might have peace with God. In other words, justification is legal, but it is also relational. Question, have you allowed the doctrine of justification, which you know, to usher you into the presence of God, to be loved by him and love him in return? That's what it is intended to do. Redemption is the means to a greater end still, that we might enjoy him. Your theology is not a textbook. Your theology does, or at least it should do something for us, and the doctrine of justification most certainly does. It brings us into a peaceful, lavish, loving relationship in peace with the God with whom we were once hostile. That's the doctrine of justification. So think of it like this. Jesus died to forgive sinners. That brings God glory. Amen? Jesus died to forgive sinners and impute them with his righteousness. That brings God glory. Jesus died to forgive sinners, impute them with his righteousness, that we might know God and enjoy him forever. That is greater still. You believe the doctrine of justification. Do you believe what it has done for you? Listen to the words of a dead Puritan. Maybe there's some alive today. God does not want to enter into battle with you or to consume you like stubble by the breath of his indignation. No, he wants to transform sinners into saints. That's God's desire. Will God toss people into hell? Yep. Does it bring him glory? Yes, a little. But something else brings greater glory, that God takes a rebel, not a lover of God, a hater of God, and lavishes his love through the propitiatory work of his son to the praise of his name. By the way, that's the purpose of the universe. It all exists for that glorious goal. Everything about your life, whether you're cognizant of it or not, is pointing in the same direction on which God is shining the spotlight, the redemptive work of his son. Why? So that the world will see it and say, it's, it's, it's the most amazing thing there is. I want that. that I, I, I want that. He's giving that to me. I want that. He would send his son to die for me. Let me ask you a question, parent. Would you send your son or daughter to die for somebody who hates your guts? God did. And he wants that to be known. He wants to transform sinners into saints, not just Fine, they can come in, but they're over there. Bring them in, bring them in. Jesus has made a way for me to have a peaceful, loving, amicable, 
fatherly, brotherly, tender relationship. That's what I want. He wants to transform vessels of wrath into vessels of mercy and to make known the riches of his glory on those whom he has prepared for glory, but from enemies to make friends of you, from the children of wrath to transform you into the children of adoption, from the state of guilt to accomplish such a mighty and wonderful change upon you as to put you into the state of justification, from the servants of sins to make you in the day of his power the willing servants of God. This is the victory over which God aspires after. If you and I went to Buckingham Palace and suddenly the crowd stirred, we, we knew something was up. You could almost feel it in the air. And look at that. It's that carriage. We've seen that on TV. It, it, it must be royalty coming our way. And you see it from a distance. There's a bunch of people in your path, but you're looking around. And sure enough, whoever your favorite royalty is, whether it was the queen, whether it's King Charles, even if you're not nuts about King Charles, what are you doing at the palace looking at it anyway? There's something about royalty. And get, I think I'm going to, well, there he goes. And you caught a glimpse that quick, that quick. Did, he didn't give you the, the wave. <laughs> and the deal. Didn't look at you. But I'm telling you, I'll bet you would drop your Buckingham Palace story at pretty much every dinner party. Oh, you caught a walleye this big. I saw the king. <laughs> your wisdom tooth tail slapping down. Because that's a big deal. What Jesus has made possible for you is to be invited in the carriage. Get in with me, says the king. Come on in and I'm gonna take you to my palace, and I'm gonna let you enjoy everything there, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a relationship with you, and, and I'm gonna let you reign with me. That is staggering, that is staggering. If I tried to sell a script to a producer in Hollywood that involved a man, and sometimes you hear about this, a parent whose, whose son or daughter, beloved child, was murdered, and sometimes you'll hear this from Christians, I forgive the one who took the life of my child. You buy that because occasionally, occasionally we do hear those stories. They're the exception. But if I said to producer, wait, there's, there's more to the story. Not only does the father in this story have his child brutally murdered, brutally, viciously murdered and forgive, declare that person forgiven, he actually, he loves the guy. He, he loves the guy so much, he brings him into his own house and provides for all of his needs and spends time with him, loves on him, and then provides an inheritance of everything he has to the ones who murdered the son. You want to buy that? And they'd reject it. It's implausible. It's impossible. Nobody would ever do that. And he's right. But God did. That is exactly what God did. He takes murderers. He takes thieves, adulterers, idolaters, pornographers, murderers, and says, I want you because of what I am. Because I am so loving. My love is so amazing. I'm willing to forgive. It's so massive. I'm going to lavish it on you because I'm a God personal relationships who is love what did jesus pray for you in the garden 
that you would know what? The love of God that is in the Trinitarian Godhead. All that love. God, please, let them have that. This is, this is precisely what we see constantly throughout the New Testament. This is not a Protestant permissive love that says boys will be boys so don't worry about sin i'm not preaching that but i am telling you we got a text to deal with and as high as the heavens are above the earth so great is god's steadfast love and it is expressed to you when he sent his son to die for you a sinner and he invites you into a relationship with him to actually let yourself experience the love of God, to be warmed by it, to be stirred by it, and to be motivated by it. And if you're going, yikes, I, this is, it's just, I've heard lovey-dovey preaching, and I don't want that. I agree with you. I, 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 I don't bring that today either. This sentimental glop from the Osteens of the world. You're, you know, God just, he's just, he just looks at you and just longs to be with you because he's just, you're so adorable and, and no we don't but but we still have a text to deal with don't we as high as the heavens are above the earth so great is God's steadfast love toward those who fear him it's there you say well I don't want to be feelings led you're right but remember our text helps us you got to be filled with theological knowledge you've got to find the balance don't fall off of Martin Luther's horse remember it's for those who fear him but don't just focus on the fear I would contend that God wants you to fear him. It's a command regularly. Fear God. He's, he's a consuming fire. He's so otherly. And you do that song, Refiner's Fire. You don't want that fire. You don't want to go through that. You don't want his loving discipline. Fear God, but don't neglect what he offers you through the doctrine of justification, that he loves us not in general he loves you and you say i don't think that i need that i don't think i need it god actually disagrees with you you say you don't need look let's not get sentimental and emotional here i don't i don't need i'm doing okay well not according to god this perfect love casts out fear knowing that we're spared from judgment so if you've got a fear of man problem You've got to let yourself know that God loves you. You've got to do it. You've got to overcome whatever that internal mechanism is that causes you to put the brakes on this. Uh, I don't have time for it. Well, then you're missing out. Uh, I, I just like theology. That's good. Keep loving theology, but don't let the scale tip. Your theology should turn into something. Why are you learning this anyway? Let Oh, my Minnesota friends, ooh, that, that guarded Scandinavian thing, pretty much 90% of the people, your last name is an S-O-N or an S-E-N. <laughs> this is like, I know it, I know it, and believe me, I do feel this. God wants this for you. He wants it for you. And it will not promote loose living. It'll promote holy living. It will dilute your fear of man. It will remove loneliness. It will strengthen your assurance. This is not used for the sake of libertine, sinful response. But you need to know when you commit that sin, and you do, and you know it, and I know this room is filled with people because I hear it all the time. 
I don't know that I'm a Christian because of that sin. Now, I'm not saying don't worry about it. I am not saying that. You should worry about it because of God's love for you. And that your response to it should be, oh, how I grieve my God who died for me while I was yet a sinner. I don't want to do that thing. And knowing that God loves you even when you commit that, that sin, it's the very thing that you need to remember. Do you ever do that? Do you ever commit a sin? You don't want to do it. And you don't think you can pray for a while? Maybe till the next day. Because I'm dirty or I'm unclean. I can't talk to God right now. Wrong. Wrong. His love for you is steady. Run to him immediately. Run to him and know even when you stumble, I didn't say dive, even when you stumble, your gracious God, he is the father of the prodigal who runs to embrace the child that returns to him. The love of God will actually strengthen your assurance. It will increase your peace. It will increase your joy. If you're just learning theology, I didn't say don't, don't do that, but if you're just learning theology, knowledge puffs up. You are going to become a crabby Christian. You are going to become a clanging symbol without what? Love. Learn theology, but let it go someplace. Let it lead to something. The, this is Paul's prayer for you. He labored and I bend my knee. And what does he pray for us? that we would be rooted and grounded in love, able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the height, the depth. Get it? Four dimensions? That's what he says. That's how big it is, as high as the heavens are the, above the earth, being rooted in that, that you would know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Don't just check the box. Yes, God's love is infinite. Uh-uh. This surpasses that. It should get into you, and you can let yourself enjoy the love of God. It surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Maybe you're one of those people, you hear all this really lousy, loose preaching, and you've run to the Puritans, and you go find the severe stuff. Is there severe stuff with the Puritans? Yes, there most certainly is. But most people overlook quotes like this. This is easy to find. Flavel, Sibs, Gill, Watson, God's admirable love. Listen to how they spoke. There is nothing, this is Samuel Davies, there's nothing more essential to religion or of more importance in it than divine love. It is the sole spring of all acceptable obedience in this life and the grand prerequisite for complete happiness in the enjoyment of God in the world to come. And without it, our religion, all our gifts and improvements, however high and show, are vain. Religion without love is as great a contradiction as friendship without love. Hold on. It borders on getting gloppy, which we don't want to do. John Owen. Nobody would question his credentials. The goal of the Christian life is not external conformity or mindless action, but a passionate love for God, informed by the mind and embraced by the will. You love the valley of vision, don't you? Because it finally has some prayers about repentance. No, it talks about my sin and how grievous and horrible I am. I, I need that to balance out all the terrible preaching that I hear on the radio. Listen to this. My heart melts at the love of Jesus, my brother, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, married to me, dead for me, risen for me. He is mine, I am his, given to me 
as well as for me. I am never so much mine as when I am his, or so much lost to myself until lost in him. Then I find my true manhood. That's the Puritans. And Jesus prayed that you would know that love. Paul prayed that we would be filled with the fullness of the love of God in Christ Jesus. How do we get that? How do you do that? I'll suggest a couple of things. It's found in Acts chapter 2. We're given the means of what they call grace. I'll call them the means of growth. Come to church every Sunday and listen to this man preach. Sit under the authority of the public preaching of the word of God. There, there are a few things better for your soul than that. Don't miss Sunday. You've got to, I heard Thor in the announcements. What? You come to, you, you need that. Sit underneath the public proclamation of the word of God. By the way, it's that we would know the love of God together, not individually, but just the, collectively as the church, that we would know the love of God. Fellowship with one another. Hang out with believers and don't just talk about how terrible the team is this year. That's fine, but that's not fellowship. Fellowship is, and I know it sounds dorky. I remember hearing it years ago and going, that's kind of Christianese lingo. What's the Lord doing in your life? Why does that do you some good? All right, I'm meeting with Thor. We're having lunch. And Thor says, you know, I've been dealing with this, this issue. And God has given me so much wisdom in this. And he worked this thing out. And I've been struggling with this sin. And I've got to tell you something. He's just victory after victory. What does that do for me? Wow. God is, God is at work here. God is at work among his people. Get together. Politics, it can consume your hours together. It's just so temporal. Talk about things eternal. It's going to grow you in the love of God. Read your Bible. Meditate on Scripture. Read Psalm 119. It's effusive. I love your word. I love your statutes. I love your precepts. They're like honey to me. Why? Because he meditated on it. Think about the word of God. Think about these things. Don't just hear a sermon and walk away from it going, got it. Or you go back and you check your notes. Yep, I've got this one cataloged. Think about it as it applies to you. When you're reading your Bible, when you're listening to a sermon. Now, I'm not going to go too far with this because this can get really messy. God created a universe for his glory. That's it. But we're the benefactors. We're not out of the story. And everything that we read in the Bible was done for his renown, that he might be glorified. But having said that, it was also done so that you might enjoy him, that you might have your sins forgiven, be ushered into a peaceful relationship with God for you. So don't get carried away with this, but as you read, say, the Jewish people being delivered out of Egypt, you mean... God went through that so that one day he would send his son at just the right time to live under the law to redeem me? Now, don't make the Bible me-centric. Don't do that. I remember that Bible that did that. For God so loved Todd that he gave his only begotten. That's no. But I'm in the world. And apparently he loved me and he sent his son for me, let it sink in. Don't get, don't get gooey. Don't, 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 don't lose your balance. Remember the fear, the holiness, righteousness, justice. But let it sink in. 
And if you are a Christian and hasn't, maybe just maybe we'll close with this. Milton Vincent offers this thought experiment. Imagine it's 500 years BC and a man enters into the temple to pray to God. 500 BC. Can you imagine that man praying a prayer that sounded something like this? Um, Dear God, even though we've rebelled against you in thought, word, and deed, would you please send the second person of the Trinity to enter into a woman's womb for nine months and be delivered in a backwater town with no amenities who would live a perfect life of total righteousness and then let himself be murdered so that that can forgive my sins and I can be credited with all of his righteousness. And then would you please send the third member of the Trinity to dwell within me, to give me power, to help me love you more, to help me to fight sin, to know and understand your word and reality. And then when I die, would you please take my spirit to heaven, eventually reuniting an eternal body that I cannot just live with you forever, but God, let us reign with you too and give me a complete inheritance as a beloved child. Amen. Nobody would have prayed that prayer, and that is precisely what God has done without being asked. That is the love of God. It is amazing. It is massive, and it is mine, and it is yours. Would you like that love? Would you like it? Christian, figure out a way to let yourself enjoy it not forsaking everything else, but enjoy it and delight in it. He wants you to. He, he wants you to. Here it is. Here's God's love. Take it. Just take it. Just, just dive into it. I, w- I want you to enjoy this. You're just going to be staggered for millennia and millennia and millennia. You're just, gonna, you're just not going to believe how much love I've got available to you. And if you're here today and you're not in Christ, I do have to inform you, you do not have that love. You've got something else. Oh, you've got a general love of God because you're walking and you're talking and he's given you clothes and transportation and he keeps you alive. So he's got a general love for you. But you've got another, dare I say, emotion. Anger. God is angry at the wicked every day. You don't have, outside of Christ, you don't have this love. And believe me, you are not so lovable that he's just going to let you slide. He is going to deal with you. And the singular most foolish mistake you can make ever in your entire life, don't walk out of what, what, What's not to love about a Savior like Jesus Christ? What is not to love about him? What is it about the one who did everything for your good, every, his entire life, so that you can be forgiven and counted as righteous? Why, why don't you want the love of that God? Come, you sinner, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Run to that Jesus. Run to, take it all to him. What did you do? Romans 8 tells us, nothing will separate you from the love of God. Just bring your garbage, your dumpster full of sin you say not my dumpster too nasty 
I, my past is filled with sexual promiscuity. Bring it. Bring it. The one who has love as infinite as the, as the universe, the one who has enough grace to save a murderer like Paul, a scumbag like me, and everybody else in this room has got enough grace for you. You run to him. Bring your abortion to him. He stands ready. This is the God who is warm and compassionate and tender, and he will receive you fully. And you don't have to sit in the back seat of the church because if people knew about that one, well, the Lord does. And he says, come, come unto me. I'll give you rest for it. You committed adultery. Maybe your spouse doesn't even know about it. Bring it to Jesus. You've been a rotten kid. Bring it to Jesus. He stands ready to save. Why? Because God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, you won't perish, but you're going to have everlasting life. Run to this Jesus and join those of us who sing, I will rise and go to Jesus. He'll embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. Run to that Jesus. And if you're in Christ, let yourself, maybe for the first time, you're born again and say, maybe for the first time, actually experience and enjoy the love of God that is available to you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray to that end. Our father Martin Luther was right. We lose our balance all the time. Don't let us do that. Don't let us become sentimental and gloppy. But don't let us become clanging cymbals filled with knowledge either. Help us to find our balance. Help us to remember what was preached last Sunday about the holiness of God and help us to remember what was preached today about the love of God so that we can not use your love abusively, but that we might love you more and more and more and hate sin even more still. Would you help us to find our balance? Would you help those of us in this room who perhaps bristle at this for whatever reason? They had a bad dad. They, they, they can't quite grasp this. Help them to get it. Help them to understand this. And that it is your desire that we would actually know and be filled with the fullness of your love for us that is available only in Christ Jesus. And to the people who are here today, and that they have not repented because of your kindness, let them run to you this minute. Let them confess their sins. Grant them repentance to turn from their wicked ways and to drop the filth and be embraced by you, the better thing. If you would grant that to them, we'll praise you forever, and we will praise you for our salvation. And we look forward to the day where we will continue to plumb the depths and never get to the bottom of your great love for sinners. In your son's name we pray, amen.